0: This is channel 253. You can ring my... shame bell. I'm Marguerite, and I want you to move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma, move to Tacoma, move to Tacoma. You'll like it. Move to Tacoma, move to Tacoma, move to Tacoma.com. All right, so we're gonna go ahead and get started. I'll make this really quick. We have a lot of people to thank. First, we wanna thank Pacific Brewing for making a nice cozy home for us again. Thank you guys. And the hot dog truck out front, if you guys get a little peaked. Thanks to Adam at Bootstrapper Studios for once again live streaming the Facebook event because not everybody who wants to be here can squeeze into this room. So thank you, Adam. Thank you, Doug, for your amazing audio setup and guidance in general. Uh, Thank you to Matt Martinez, who can't be here tonight, from KNKX. KNKX has been very important and involved in getting these events off the ground. Uh well, so else well, so else well. else am I supposed to say thank you too. Thank you to Channel 253, which is like our latest endeavor that's kind of birthed out of all of this. and all of the podcast hosts. Uh, yeah, thank you to Tony and to Jessica Daly for being bouncers tonight. If you are in here, it's because you convinced them, which is no small joke. Uh, Thank you to Eric Hamburg, who is not here, and to our brand new, not Adult Civics Happy Hour sponsor, but Channel 253. They didn't want anything to do with this. Channel 253 sponsor, Alaska Airlines. And before I turn it over to Nate Bowling to do the important things of the evening, please go into the hashtag ACHH253 Twitter feed to get your Nate Bowling gifts for the evening. Thank you.
1: If you don't get that joke, I appreciate you for not getting it. Thank you. Um, yeah, next slide, please. So, I want to welcome all of you to our fourth Adult Civics Happy Hour. And I want to remind you of how we operate here and also kind of let our panelists know uh, this is a very informal occasion talking about civic issues with a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful audience. Uh, the first thing is, it's a happy hour, so do you? Uh, we're here in a brewery, and you should take advantage of the delicious beers they have. Uh, if I may, the uh, Citra IPA is the, sorry, Citra Pale Ale is the business. Um, also, if you're a vegan or vegetarian, there are vegan and vegetarian dogs available. So uh, get your meat tasting, not meat. Yeah. What? Uh, the next thing is that after we kind of have our part. There'll be Q and A, Q&A, and we have high-tech questioning and low-tech questioning. So all around you are half index cards, and for one of those, if you have a question, you write your question on there, and then if you get Hope's attention over here, or Lindsay's attention over there, yep, uh, they will take your question and then they will curate the questions into uh, questions we'll ask our audience. Uh, sorry, our panelists. Um, also, if you're tech savvy and you want to ask your question via Twitter, it is hashtag, I always do this backwards, hashtag ACHH253. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then the last thing I'm going to say, just for people whose first time it is, is that this is a jargon free zone. It's a plain talk environment. So if at any point the panelists, and I didn't warn them about this, I think, um, the panelists or myself lapse into jargon, uh, there will be a shame bell. And the shame bill basically means homeboy, homegirl, go back and explain that, because I don't know what you're talking about in your special smart people language. So the last thing I just want to say is just thank you all for being here. Uh, every single one of you who's here right now and here online has a choice how you spend your Mondays, and given the political moment in our country and given the needs of our community, I think it's very important we be civically engaged, and it's... I personally, as a government teacher, see this as an extension of my classroom, and so welcome to Room 306. All right. Except for beer. Yeah, Room 306 with beer. So enough from me now. I'd like to introduce my guests. Lindsey? So we have with us the Public Information Officer for the Pierce County Sheriff Department, Ed Troyer. Thank you. We have the mother of dragons, (laughs) uh, Vanessa Hernandez, lawyer from the ACLU, and uh, honestly just all around badass in my opinion. (laughs) And somebody who wears many hats, and so I'll (laughs) walk through all of them really fast. Um, She's formerly general counsel for Tacoma Schools, uh, also adjunct professor of law at UWT, and now currently the deputy director of HR Dang it, assistant superintendent of HR uh, for Yakima Schools and all-around good person, Shannon McMuney. And I I would be remiss looking in the room right now. If you're an educator and it's your second week back or first week back, raise your hand, please. All the teachers in the room. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Way to represent y'all. So you didn't come for banter from me. You came for real talk. So let's start. I'm wondering if each of you could go down the line and give, for lack of a better term, a State of the Union, from your point of view, of law enforcement and community relations in 2017.
2: Do you want me to start?
1: Absolutely. First of all, oh, this is going to be a little bit of a problem. me turn that
2: out so we don't get the back feed. Um, I'm our department's public information officer, but I also am the executive director of a program called Crime Stoppers. And For the last few years, Governor Inslee has appointed me as the Washington State Gambling Commissioner commissioner, so I have a pretty good varied background in law enforcement because everybody in our agency wears many hats. I think the state of law enforcement and public relations right now, due to national media, we got to fight that as much as the perception of what's going on That the reality. It kind of cracks me up that we were seeing so much about the KKK and some of these groups getting so much airtime and all the things that were happening. When you realize that there's only 500 of those people registered between Canada and America total, 500 people. So they're actually doing a great job of getting a lot of attention, bad attention. And they're doing a a good, you know, it's it's, it's like guerrilla warfare. If there's only five of you and you need to get attention or do something, you got to go out and do something big to get it. And unfortunately, they are successful at it. And so what that does, it puts a lot of people on the other side to appear to be combating the problem across the country, which we are not. Just like a lot of the issues that are facing uh, police nationally, we're very lucky to live here in Tacoma, Pierce County. And that we have started over the years ago. Um, Our sheriff has been going to the Hilltop Action Group, the Black Coalition. We've been doing community policing and policing and neighborhood policing for the last 20 years. I teach classes in schools, I go talk to students, I go talk to teachers, and that's something that we were way ahead of everybody else from across the country. So I feel that, from my point of view, a lot of the things that are going on around the country aren't happening here, but we do have some big issues, especially when it comes to mental health, people with mental health issues. You know what the second biggest uh, mental health institution is in Pierce County? The jail, Pierce County jail. And you know what would be the first if Western State wasn't in Pierce County? The jail. So that is not where we should be housing mentally ill people. We have that problem along with a lot of other things that we really need to work on, both as a community and in law enforcement, and not let the blur
1: and the white noise get in the way of other people's problems. And Shannon, we'll go to you next, and then come to the, come to Vanessa last.
3: I think we are at a very challenging place in community relationship with law enforcement. And it really is a personal and local issue as well as a national issue. From my perspective, I think about it on the school side of really defining what role should law enforcement have in public schools, especially since there's been a big push over the last 20 years to have school resource officers in more and more schools. What role do they play? How do we keep separate the functions that a law enforcement officer should be doing in the role of a school resource officer versus administration and enforcing school district policy. And I feel like that's a big area where there's a breach in trust between our communities and even our school employees and our school districts and law enforcement when that line gets blurred and we have law enforcement officers attempting to discipline students rather than address criminal issues. I think that there's also, we're at a place in time where there are a lot of issues with respect to deciding how our constitution is going to be applied to individuals' interactions with law enforcement. And change in current Supreme Court makeup and the cases that are being considered are going to play out pretty significantly, I think, in the next two years. But also understanding that we're now at a national conversation about what the relationship between community and law enforcement should be and if law enforcement is gonna continue to the same traditional models or if there's gonna be a shift towards different models. So I think there's a lot of topics going on that make it a challenging discussion and a discussion that has a lot of civic implications no matter where you work and where you live.
1: Just for the benefit of the audience really fast, use the term school resource officer. What does that mean?
3: In most school districts, it means a police officer who is employed by the county or the city, but physically works out of a school building or a school district. Here in Tacoma, the Tacoma Police Department has school resource officers at each of the comprehensive high schools and a sergeant who supervises them who is based out of Oakland High School. Uh, In my new town, I moved home to Yakima for family reasons, and trust me, going home after 22 years has been Uh, (laughs) eye-opening. Eye-opening. A lot. Uh, We have a city of Yakima police officers at all of our high schools and all of our middle schools. And so the role of the school district employees who who are called security monitors is very different. In Eastern Washington, then the role of the um, school security staff here in Tacoma and the folks that I worked with in Seattle before Tacoma.
1: Vanessa.
4: So, I think it's really important when we talk about law enforcement relationships in communities to look at systems. So, systematically across this country, we live in a country where one out of every three people um, can expect to be arrested in their lifetime, but if, which is a Staggering and historically unprecedented number, right? Two years ago, if someone had asked me the question about, and I, so I think not just about direct interactions with police. I really think about our systems of mass incarceration, and. Um, Two years ago, if someone had asked me the question, what's the state of affairs, I would have said, we are on the cusp of potentially a meaningful, significant national transformation uh, in the way that we use our criminal justice system. And I really do think that as a society, what Shannon mentioned, that we have become dependent upon law enforcement responses, um, or in some cases, I think law enforcement over responses to a whole variety of social ills that don't need that sort of response. But I also think that uh, now we live in a society where the Attorney General is pretty actively pushing a police militarization, law, um, law and order approach um, to policing that is really destructive. And I also think that it's really important for us to recognize in this room that even if we don't have uh, individualized problems in our interactions with law enforcement, those problems exist. Um, And that is particularly targeted at black and brown communities. It is particularly targeted at poor communities. And I don't think what we have is a media relationship, a media relations problem uh, where, you know, the media is making a massive amount of hay out of things that don't exist. I think we have a problem when a thousand people in our country are killed by police every year. And I think we have a problem when a, a significantly disproportionate number of those people are black and brown men. And I think we have a problem when about a third or a half of the people who are killed by police um, have mental illness. And that's not to say that police officers don't do incredibly important and good work, right? Individual people involved in all of these systems are, for the most part, often very good people who sometimes get caught in systems that are not working, as we should all want them to.
1: So go ahead, man. So one of the things that that occurs to me as you all are speaking is how similar law enforcement is to to education where I think that Tacoma Schools on the whole does a very good job educating the young people of the city of Tacoma but the kids who are not served by the system disproportionately uh, are students of color and low-income students. Uh, Ed, you talked about national events and I think the national ed conversation doesn't always match what's what's happening here locally. And so I, I just wonder... What are the things locally that are happening that we should be aware of with law enforcement? Uh, Obviously positive things from your point of view. Uh, And the other thing I would ask is, uh, kind of a two-part question is, it seems to me that there's a a trust gap developing between some communities and law enforcement. How do we rebuild trust between, between communities?
2: Well, first of all, when we talk about the national problem, we can look at it this way. People use a number that 50% of people are in jail for drugs, and the majority of them are people of color. Now, that may be true nationally and federally, but here in Pierce County in the state of Washington, 7% of the people are in jail for drugs. Other 83 or 44% are violent criminals that are felons and are in jail for other reasons, not because of drugs. And those are the people we want in jail. We don't want people and drug users in jail. Our prosecutor standing right here, Mark Lindquist. And I brought him from my bodyguard because I knew I was gonna get teamed up on him. <laughs> but in all seriousness, our Pierce County jail is not made to house felons for years. We have twenty-seven people in our jail that should be in prison that are there for murder, standing and waiting for court. So you got to kind of look at the numbers, what's going on locally and nationally. Yeah, do we want the national problems adrift here? Absolutely not. Do we want that type of mentality and policing to come? No. And when you talked about officers being disciplinarians at schools, in Pierce County, in the Sheriff's Department, If one of our guys ever got involved in anything like that, they would be in big trouble because not only is it against the law, it's a policy violation, a manual violation. So something's going on different with you guys than what we do in the school. We're there to stop kids from bringing weapons in the school. We're there for the kids to feel safe. Two of our deputies this year during the last high school graduation from two different schools were asked by the students to give their graduation talk. So we do build very important relationships with kids and teachers. And a lot of our successes are the stories you have not heard about because we've averted big major problems, taking guns from kids from their houses on the way to school and other issues like that. So is it a very viable function? Does it work? Yeah, but I guess there's always room for improvement. I'll be the first one to admit that. We are very good at learning from our mistakes. And if some of our guys are doing something bad, then we need to know. And to address your... How do we do that? I think by working with the faith community, working with the students, working with educators, working with business, integrating the police officers that they see every day. It's an old thing called community policing. And it's something that we're trying to build on as we get the manpower to make sure. Because you know what? We're out. We want those people and those kids to come work for us. We want minorities. We want brown people, black people. We go out and specifically try and recruit them. And we're doing a pretty good job of it, but I don't want it to get to the point to where they don't want to work for law enforcement or be involved because of the stereotypical issues that may be out there.
1: Vanessa, go ahead.
4: Um, So, two things. One is, um, if I could ask that we not use the word felons to refer to people, I I know that 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 just hurts me, right? Because If they're
2: convicted felons, I'm going to use the word convicted felons. People
4: who have been convicted of felonies. Um, To a lot of folks, Washington State is the number one incarcerator, has a disproportionately high rate of incarceration for property offenses. So yes, there are lots of folks who have committed felony offenses, but it's not necessarily all people who have committed violent offenses who are in prisons and jails. Now, setting all that aside, um, You know, I I think in terms of building trust between law enforcement and communities, a lot of what you've said is absolutely correct, right? You need to have law enforcement that reflects the communities that they are engaged with. Um, You need to have law enforcement that are engaged with people in positive senses and are not just sort of acting out an enforcement um, mechanism. You need to remove the incentives to sort of policing for profit, uh, which is things that we don't have quite as much of a problem in, within Washington as in other parts of the country where uh, officers are sort of hitting ticket quotas that are necessary to fund municipal government. Um, you need to eliminate uh, crimes that, get or, or de-emphasize reliance on policing for crimes uh, that are primarily nuisance value things that often provide a, an uh, impetus to arrest folks or funnel them into jails that don't belong. A really good example of that in Washington State is the crime of driving with a license suspended in the third degree. So if you commit a moving violation, traffic, uh, like you don't stop at a stop sign, you uh, um, get a speeding ticket, you don't pay the ticket, your license is suspended administratively. If you are caught driving without that, uh, your license. If you're caught driving with your license suspended, that's a misdemeanor level offense. That's about accounts for about. 30% of the prosecutions in Washington state, right? Eliminating reliance on policing for those kinds of efforts frees up resources to focus more on things that actually impact public safety. I also think, though, there's a huge amount of uh, generalized work across the country to be done on how we train officers to interact with communities, making sure that there's significant training and implicit bias, um, that officers are aware that each individual person carries um, implicit biases that we might not be aware of, right? Uh, based often on race, on gender, on disability and how to counteract that so that an officer doesn't perceive similar behaviors from people as threatening or non-threatening, based in part upon the way that we are all socialized to think about race. Um, I think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of uh, crisis intervention training and making sure that officers are trained to de-escalate in crisis situations and that they also have mental health professionals and other folks available in crisis intervention teams um, to respond to incidents so that things don't escalate to the type you know, to the to the state where we end up seeing these horrific videos of people being brutalized or even killed, um, but I do think ultimately it is in part about making sure that police are uh, guardians and servants of the communities that they are working in and with. Please, uh, I'm going to jump on the community policing discussion
3: a little bit because my first job, other than giving pony rides at the uh, pumpkin patch because that's what you do when you grow up in the country. Uh, i not kidding, first real job, pony rides, and I was paid with a slice of pie. My first real grown-up job other than that was I was the community half of the University of Washington's community policing department when I was in college. And uh, one of my professional and personal mentors is Norm Stamper, former Seattle police chief. And he has written uh, several books and most recently I, I think it's to protect and serve or, and I 'll pull the title to get it right but his theory of community policing is pretty consistent with my with some of the thoughts I have which is community policing cannot be telling the community how to be involved with the police right people support and sustain what they help create and so if we're truly going to have a community policing model we need to involve the community at all levels of interaction with law enforcement and the creation of a system of law enforcement that includes community voices on everything from policy decisions to truly having civilian oversight boards that have a level of authority that's not really traditionally been given to them and really changing the dynamic because the dynamic between law enforcement and cities and law enforcement and probably counties is very similar to the very traditional steel mill bargaining where the process for getting rid of an officer who's engaged in misconduct is very challenging even when the misconduct is very significant. It ends up going to an arbitration panel or a hearing officer. And so it takes a long time to create change internally. So I firmly believe in the community policing model where community is involved in all aspects, but that's a tremendous systemic change. And system change doesn't happen overnight. It's oftentimes an ebb and flow where there's a discussion and then a reaction backwards. And I think that, that we just have to be mindful that community policing is not police telling the community how to interact with them. It's a partnership that includes partnership at all levels.
1: Ed, I want to go back to you for a moment. So you're from the county sheriff's department, which is not TPD. Could you just kind of, for the room, talk about the work that you all do out in the county and how that work differs from TPD's work?
2: Well, Tacoma is obviously going to be more of an urban setting, and we would like to think of ourselves as a more rural setting, but we do have half a million people, and you know, you combine every police agency in Pierce County, all 23 of them, and we're bigger than all of them in combined, including Tacoma. As far as manpower, as many people, how we have on the streets, the citizens, amount of citizens, and the geographic land, lakes, mountains, that's all our guys. Right now I have uh, 12 of our guys back. All our boat drivers, swift water people are back in uh, Florida doing rescues. We sent them a few days ago on military aircraft, and they're back there for a quick in and quick out. They'll spend 10 days in tents doing that work because our people are trained to do swift water rescue, mountain rescue, water rescue. We have the divers. We have the original meth lab team that started. We used to have 350 meth labs a year in Pierce County. When we got the team together and put resources on that, now we may get about a dozen tops. So we've made a drastic effort decrease in meth labs, which were the bad ones because they were, you know, destroying properties and burning houses down and causing problems. But we had to work with the community to do that. What you know, but the community is our eyes and ears. There's only 358 of my guys that are commissioned, but yet there's 800,000 people in Pierce County. So without their help and photos that we put out of people who've robbed banks and done bad things, without the public telling us who these people are and where to find them, we need those people. They're our eyes and ears. So without them, It doesn't work because our guys don't drive around in two-man cars too often and they have sometimes a half hour to go to get to a call. And they're gonna have to be there alone for a long time so they gotta be good at using their negotiating skills. They gotta be good at de-escalating because nobody wants to get somewhere way out rural and you're the only one there and the people turn against you because you're not gonna win that fight. Yeah.
1: So I'm glad you mentioned de-escalation because that's one of the things I wanna touch on too. Uh, I wanna talk though about use of force policies. And so this is like the Goldilocks question I guess. Uh, For all three of you, do you think the the use of force policies employed by law enforcement across the country, uh, and obviously we're not talking about, you can't talk about all places at once, but just just in general, uh, use of force policies. uh, Too loose? Too tight? Just right?
3: I tried to write one once and it was very mystifying for me to figure out where that balance was. I have worked...
1: Wait, can you say why it's hard to do that?
3: Coming into a system, you know, I my approach was I suddenly found myself one day the supervisor of the Tacoma School District's Safety and Security Department by receiving an email that was sent to the school board that moved them under me on the org chart. Okay? I'm a lawyer. I mean, I've worked in a police department. I worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I worked for the Seattle City Attorney's Office as a victim's advocate, so I have some background in understanding interactions with law enforcement, finding out on an org chart I suddenly supervise people with guns, even though I guess that's not the case anymore, um, was quite a a, a surprising day. And so really looking at what is an appropriate use of force policy, what is an appropriate use of force policy in a schooled setting, was very complicated. I was very lucky in that... um, one of my first jobs was working for a large law firm in Seattle who are uh, the attorney that I worked for is the local monitor for the Seattle Police Department. So there's Merrick Bob, who is... A, the Seattle Police Department is under a federal agreement associated with its policing standards and its practices, and a, a federal district court judge in Seattle appointed a monitor to oversee these changes, and he's out of San Francisco, and so when he's not available... This attorney in Seattle handles the day-to-day oversight. And so I was lucky that I was able to call him and say, Peter, I now supervise the police department, and we don't have a use of force policy, and we need to have one, and we want to continue to have this collaborative relationship with the Tacoma Police Department. Pierce County Sheriff Rustin Fife or Furcrest, because of course City of Tacoma includes a number of different law enforcement agencies that you don't immediately think of, but recognize oh, I, I
1: always think of Furcrest PD, but that's <laughs> Yeah, 19 miles an hour. I'm listening. Sorry, sorry.
3: I think there was an unwritten rule, which is never get pulled over in a school zone or you'll get fired, especially in Chief Cheeseman's zone. So that being the case, um, trying to wrap your head around what is appropriate use of force for law enforcement in a school setting for the school district, school patrol officers versus the role that the Tacoma Police Department had and their compliance with their own... Uh, use of force policies. How do you adjust that to, to fit a school setting? And so I think it's it's challenging to find that middle ground and I think that Ed appropriately identified the concern associated with mental health and How can we get our officers skilled in being able to respond to a situation and recognize the complexities of mental health? Because if there's anything less funded than public education in this state, it is mental health uh, especially mental health for, for children. Now, I'm, I'm in a room that had a lot of people who I know are teachers or educators and administrators, and they recognize the challenges that come into play when we have a student experiencing a significant mental health issue in a school setting. We have to serve them. We can't remove the student from school because they have a mental health concern. We have to figure out how to safely serve them, recognizing the concern of safety for everyone. So it's a tough balance. I think it's... Very tough in a K-12 setting.
1: Okay, Vanessa, I, I I know how you're gonna answer this question, so I want to go to Ed first. So just because one of the things for me is is that like I I want to give law enforcement officers the benefit of the doubt. Like I have a brother who works for Seattle Police Department. Uh, there's a very close path in my life where I'm a a state patrol officer instead of a teacher if something happened differently in 2005. Uh, but oftentimes I find myself watching videos online and I'm just like, huh. And so I, I wonder, what's your point of view, like, from... You know the question. Well, you're asking about having, filming the police? Well, not yet. That's that, coming no, up. The later. Just, just,
2: well, first, first just of all... Use the force policies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For, for, first of all, um, I'm in a unique perspective, because away from work, I'm also a foster parent. And over the years, I've uh, adopted five kids out of foster care, two legal guardianship, adopted three, and two had mental health problems. So I've been through that system with kids, and they're adults, and I still advocate for them. And uh, my youngest one is a senior this year, and then, then, then we're done. And um, time to move on. We we'll, we'll hope for some good grandkids that we can rent and give back. So um, the issue with the mental health is big. That, that is, not only do we have to deal with mental health, and yes, our people need more training, but a lot of the calls that come to us when problems start come from mental health workers when they're out in a call trying to work with somebody with a mental health issue, and it's gone bad. So even they can't, just because we have mental health workers with us, or they're there, that's not always going to fix a problem, and they're going to slide downhill really, really fast. Um, in the last three days, or the last four days, we've had two shootings and two stabbings, and all four suspects' families have said they suffer from mental health issues. And they right out admitted to doing it. They don't even, they don't see... So there's a bigger problem with the people with mental health issues that we got to back way up. Not figure out when they're in jail that there's a problem. we got to figure out before they get to jail that there's a problem. Or when they're a kid, when they start showing signs, certain, certain tendencies that might go, hey, there's something wrong
1: here. That's when we need to do something. And so... The question's about use of force policies, but then mental health definitely complicates that as well. Do you want to take a swing?
4: Yeah, so I mean I also have most experience with this in the school context, right? And looking at school policing. And what I found really interesting, so I did a review of I think like a 85 different school district policies on policing. And what I found in all of that is that almost none of the school districts had any policy on use of force in schools whatsoever. And I do think that context really matters, right? When you're talking about officers who are in a K-12 school where people send their children under compulsion of the state, right? But you send your child to be educated, and you send your child to be loved, and you send your child to be cared for. um, That that The degree of force in a response that is appropriate in that environment is drastically different, even than the degree of response that might be appropriate just for an ordinary interaction out on the street. I mean, in schools, I think, honestly, that officers should not use force unless it is absolutely necessary to prevent physical bodily injury to another person, Um, and even then the absolute minimum level of force that is necessary, and only for as long as it is necessary, which I think is the most stringent standard. But I also think it's no secret that you know, in the context of deadly force, the ACLU's position is, again, that deadly force should be an absolute, absolute, absolute last resort, and that all policing should operate from a position of the sanctity of life of the people who are involved even when those situations are difficult. And that's not to minimize how incredibly difficult they are. But you know we see instances of um, officers who are able to respond to these incredibly difficult, incredibly volatile situations in ways that don't escalate and that don't re- require the use of deadly force. There's one um, video of an interaction in Camden, New Jersey, with a, a man who's clearly having some some challenges, who's walking down the street swinging a knife at police officers, right? And there are two ways that that situation could go, right? There is the deadly force, which would, in I think, under most police department policies, under Seattle's, I know for sure, be considered a justified response. But what the officers did in that instance is there were about 10 officers and they just made a lot of physical space around this person and they waited it out until he dropped the knife and they tackled him. And 20 minutes later, he was arrested and in custody without any loss of life. And that's not to say that that is easy to do, um, but I do think that it's important.
2: Well, one one thing on that is, it was interesting when you're talking about use of force policies, because he pretty much read our use of force policies. We we do keep them all stringent, and we don't. It's students. The only time we go hands on at school is to keep the kid from hurting himself or hurting others. We have followed kids around school for hours that are that have an issue and let them drain down, let them wear themselves out, and then a lot of times they end up sitting down and talking and you can get a lot more done than if you wrestle them down to the ground and you do that, we don't do that. And also on our use of force policies, we were one of the first departments, which now turns out, of course the officers weren't happy about this, but every time you used force, even if there was an arrest, if it was just an arm bar you had to forcefully handcuff somebody, you have to write a use of force report. Mm-hmm. And our department okay. documents every single use of force report. And then we have a board review them and then the officer goes in if there's a problem to say, how can we have done this better? What can we have done maybe next time this step in between step A and C? What could we have done to B? So we learn from our mistakes. We do write use of force reports. Even if they're not in arrest, there's a use of force report every time somebody's even pepper sprayed. Anytime a gun comes out and even pointed at the ground, even if you're pulling your gun out, just in case things go bad, you're writing a use of force report.
1: I know you want to jump in okay. real fast. Uh Vanessa, is that common throughout the state, the use of force reports?
3: You know, I couldn't answer that question okay, off the top of okay. my head. All right, let me this is for in the public school setting, it doesn't matter what the department's individual departments use of force expectations are. Get the shame bell ready to make sure I do this without getting too jargony. <laughs> Washington State has a <laughs> expectation related to isolation and restraint. For students in public school settings that applies to educators and to law enforcement. So any time that a student is being isolated, i.e., put in a room, unable to leave, or restrained, meaning physically prevented from doing something, which just
1: finding the vocabulary as you go. Well done. Well thank done. Thank
3: you. <laughs> which which by the way can range from holding a kindergartner's hand for an hour to keep them from moving, because you're physically preventing them, controlling their behavior by holding on to them to when law enforcement uh, uses handcuffs. The problem, and I think Vanessa will agree with me on this even though I'm on the school side of it, is that system is only so good as your staff understands it and does the reports. And And most school police officers don't think they're covered by that law. Exactly, and it doesn't matter how many times the school district tells them that, unless the school district's agreement with a law enforcement agency provides a level of oversight to dictate that you will not only follow your department's policy, but you'll follow the following school district policies. You are limited in your authority to say, but you have to. It's the law. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, but I'm not going to do it. Well, you can ask for a change in the SRO, but it doesn't change the fact that you now don't know. So as great as that school resource officer, I covered it before.
1: We've we've already covered that term. (laughs) (laughs)
3: But I think that it's, it's true of Every policy, the policy is only so good as the self-reporting, right? As as Ed mentioned, they're going out, they're on their way out to Eatonville or someplace far away and it's one person in a car. It's only so good as the department training and if you have things like dashboard cameras and other tools to know what the officer did. One of my more painful jobs, both as HR and my role in Tacoma was to watch the video and see what really happened. And to know that you get a report where there's no mention of guns being drawn. There's no mention of handcuffing. And then you watch the uh, video because the parent or the ACLU or somebody else has asked for the video, and now you're in the position of having to defend actions you didn't know about. And I always tell my employees, now that I'm in charge of human resources, never put me in a position where your actions are indefensible. But it happens yes, I can terminate that employee, but it doesn't change the negative experience that this student has had, right? We can't undo those experiences that you have in life that shape you for the rest of your life and your belief system. And if you're 12 and you're handcuffed in the middle of your class for no good reason, that's what stays with you. And it's incumbent not only on law enforcement, but on the school district to make sure that you're enforcing those. And and not to say that it's just school resource officers who have the issue. Trust me, I have to explain this policy probably 27 times a year. And I know without a doubt that right now, today, somebody in Yakima probably violated the policy and probably didn't write a report.
1: So one of the things that I've been struck by watching like what's happening with law enforcement around the country is that we have a threshold for uh, a use of deadly force where an officer is allowed to use deadly force if they feel like their life is in danger. And so... There was an effort in Washington state to change the threshold for which law enforcement officers could be prosecuted. It was initiative, I wanna say 873, but it didn't get enough signatures, so it didn't make to the ballot correct. Uh, There's a new initiative right now, initiative 940, could you all talk about Initiative 940 and your thoughts on it, your worldview from it? Well, as far as law enforcement goes, we like about 90% of it. We're pretty much good
2: with it. There are, some little, there are some issues that if you take it away from what it's originally intended to do, that if an officer makes a mistake out there, even if it's not related to shooting or something, and his intent wasn't to do something bad, and he, he wasn't showing harm or trying to, but makes a mistake, he could be held liable criminally. And there's a small portion of that, some things that need to be tweaking. And our prosecutor is actually kind of up to speed and working on that. And um, we obviously want to see something different. Because i got to tell you what, when I saw some of those other agencies that have shot people, my partner and I have talked, and like, we, we wouldn't even got out in a car if we saw a guy carving a wooden stick with an knife. Why do we even get out in a car on that? So it makes me just as ill as it makes everybody else. And some other things, we used to de-escalate other ways. And... Um, Back in the day, when I hate to say that, but back in the day, because I've been on over 30 years, so I can't say that. Um, but back when I was in patrol, we never took guns out at knife, people with knives. We worked Western State Hospital. We found people at shoplift knives all the time. We'd come up with another plan. The best one was just let them wear themselves out. And, you know, they don't come running at you like a horror movie. Then that changes something different. But over the years of having people armed with knives and upset, that's never happened. But if you can, let them wear themselves out, wear themselves out. Does something need to be changed as far as the law goes to hold people accountable? That um, What is the term? Malice? That's the one that they're thing, and there's no malice there? Yeah, most law enforcement officers, our department, our sheriff has a Ph.D. from Yale, and we call him the smartest sheriff in all America. And he's a very esoteric writing, and he writes a lot on this, and he believes it should be changed, but it should be something that's changed that works for everyone.
1: Can I just point a privilege really fast? Somewhere in your answer, you talked about a shooting in Seattle, and I just want to say that you're probably the first law enforcement officer I've ever sat with who's ever said anything obviously truthful, but also like negative about other people's practice. And that honesty, I appreciate. Thank you. Well,
2: there's a few more I can talk about. I've cringed, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I still have three years left. Invite me back in two years.
3: Well, I, I, no, I'm I have kidding. to say... Yeah. I, I actually happened to witness that because my, my office was immediately outside of uh, where that shooting occurred, and we were in the car on our way to do a deposition, and so we were the second row back from that, stops, from that intersection, and I have always really thought about that even though it's very different than my context with law enforcement and public schools, when it comes to that standard. In most every other context, the legal standard that we're held responsible to is what would a reasonable person be expected to do in the circumstances? What's reasonably, and in the school world, our standard is, are we doing what we can to keep our students safe from reasonably foreseeable harm? And so when you get into the things like actual malice, meaning intent to do wrong or intent to do harm, it's a really high standard. But when we're talking about criminal prosecution, then you have to get beyond the even higher standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. And I will admit, I have totally stolen Prosecutor Lindquist's uh, description of beyond a reasonable doubt because he generously (laughs) stopped into a class Nate and I were teaching and gave a great example of what that means. And when you balance it out and you're thinking about criminal prosecutions, meeting the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt is really hard. So I don't think we need to worry about overzealous prosecution of law enforcement because if a case is not going to meet that standard or beyond a reasonable doubt, there's already a stopgap there. But then there's the question of do you have to truly want to kill somebody to have to be charged versus being completely reckless in the legal sense of of you should be held responsible for your actions because you or I, as citizens, would be held responsible for our actions if we engaged in a reckless manner and we're not entrusted
4: to keep the public safe. Vanessa? So, just to set the background for folks, the standard for holding an officer accountable um, for an officer involved shooting in Washington is that you have to prove that the officer acted without good intent and with actual malice. That is the highest standard in the country. It is the, and and it is functionally impossible to meet. Uh, So what we have right now on the books is a law that effectively prevents any police officer who engages in any shooting from being held accountable. Um, There has only been one officer charged under this statute in Washington since it was enacted. Just one. Um, That was an officer where there was a, a person who was drunk driving and being belligerent and the officer said to another officer who testified at his trial let's end this and shot into the back of the car's window and killed the person who was inside of the vehicle and that officer was acquitted because they could not meet the standard of proving actual malice and the complete absence of good faith and no officer in Washington, other than that officer, has ever been charged, um, and and I think that that's a standard which is just completely unrealistic. So obviously, we need a standard that is going to allow for for you know accountability, right? And I think that there is a pretty big line between an honest mistake. And the sort of instances that we've seen around the country, and also I would argue in this state, um, that reflect more than just an honest mistake. That reflect some recklessness, some disregard of training, some disregard of the of the expectations we should have of our law, of our law enforcement. So the ACLU has been working on um, bills in the legislature to address this issue, and continue to support efforts to to change our existing law, which just isn't good enough for our communities.
2: And you know what? Myself, the sheriff, and most of the guys I work with would agree with that. Absolutely. The ACLU and the Sheriff's Department agree, y'all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: actually, we have the ACLU coming after us now for, you have too many people with mental health in the jail and not enough services. And we were laughing and saying, we've been ringing that bell and beating that drum for 10 years, where have you been? Come
1: help us. Yeah. Dogs and oh. cats are friends. Uh, and <laughs> this is a question for you, and it's Pierce County Sheriff-specific, but if you know Tacoma, feel free to go there as well. Uh, so as a teacher who works in a low-income high school that's about 80% brown, uh, I have a lot of concerns about immigration policy and the idea that my students' primary job when they're in my classroom is to learn and not be worried about their safety or the safety of their families. And so I'm just wondering, what is the Pierce County Sheriff's Department's policy about cooperating with, uh, with ICE?
2: Well, our policy basically follows the law. If ICE calls us up and puts a detainer on an inmate, we do not honor it. We don't honor it. What we tell them to do is go get a judge and put a signature on a piece of paper, and then we'll let you know if you have court oversight which is the law. There's case law out there. So ICE knows we don't not work with them. We're cooperative with them. But we also won't honor their paperwork unless it's signed by a judge and it's gone through a court process. And we have a court order saying, hold this guy for this agent because of this reason. If, if, if not, that... We don't do that. When ICE wants to go out to an area just to go check on people, we don't go unless they have a warrant for a specific person. And usually at that point, it's somebody who's dangerous, and that's why there's a warrant form. And we'll send people out to get them, not because ICE wants them, because we want them. You know, So we are not agents of ICE. Uh, our sheriff and most of us aren't going to try and support a totally failed immigration policy that we're going to be able to go out and do something about at the local level. Um, You can tell your students and you can tell their families, there are no sheriffs coming to your door, no matter what happens in the next few years. We we, we are not agents of the federal government, and we won't be, and we make sure that kids and people know that, and we're actually out giving talks to groups and churches to let them know, don't don't be afraid of us. We still want you to come if you have a problem, because we want to help you. We don't want young kids to run from law enforcement because they're afraid they're going to be taken away. And so... (laughs) Tell them, please, trust your local law enforcement because they are not taking you anywhere and they will never be taking you anywhere. We're Except if you go to
3: court and even though local law enforcement isn't the one initiating it, now I'm in Yakima and we've had issues where people come to court for legitimate purposes and find themselves being picked up by ICE. If you're going to get a protection order and you find yourself in a circumstance where you're now, the per- by virtue of having filed an order of protection, meaning somebody... Uh, usually in a dating relationship or a spousal relationship is inflicting harm on you and you're trying to seek a protective order, and now you might find yourself being the person picked up. So speaking of cats and dogs getting along, this is an area where Vanessa and I, as as somebody who's represented schools and is now school administration, are are very much in agreement because schools should not be the place where students have fear associated with their families or themselves. And it is very, for me, in the school district I'm in now, Uh, The single biggest characteristic of our district is poverty. The second biggest characteristic is coming from a monolingual Spanish-speaking household. The third characteristic is uh, being undocumented. And so we have staff members who are uh, impacted currently by immigration issues. We have staff members who are dreamers, who who are very concerned about if they're going to be able to work come March. We have students and families who are, who are very terrified and, and to some degree we have staff and students who worry about the fact that they encouraged families to pursue DACA and have handed out contact information essentially because to keep your DACA status you have to provide current contact information. So we have that fine line of, of what can we do as a school district to help? Well. We have opened up our schools to the Yakima County Bar Association, to the ACLU, to the Northwest Immigration uh, Rights Project, to come and do uh, clinics for our families. And we've stepped in to talk to our families about what do you need to do to make sure that somebody can take care of your kids if you're going to be taken into custody. And that's a really hard place to be at right now, right? To have real conversations with our families about how you're gonna find somebody to make educational
4: decisions for your kid if you're finding yourself in detention.
1: Do you want to chime in? Um,
4: No, except for to say that the... you have the law exactly right, so yay. Which is that um, you know, being simply being present in this country without documentation is not a crime, and I think that there is a lot of rhetoric out there that Wait, can talks you say that about,
1: again? Because I, I saw some yeah. heads nodding, but some kind of confused faces yeah. too. So
4: simply being in this country without documentation is not a crime. It is a civil. It is a violation of civil immigration law. Okay. Um, And there's a lot of rhetoric out there about criminal aliens as if every person who lacks legal documentation status is a criminal. And that's just absolutely untrue. And local police have no authority to enforce Civil immigration violations.
1: Can you say that again, please, too?
4: (laughs) Local police have, the US Supreme Court has held that local police have absolutely no authority to enforce civil immigration law. So it is not your local police's business whether a person has documentation to be in the United States currently or not. Um, So, you know. The idea that local law enforcement would insert themselves into a federal civil immigration system is, I mean, frankly, illegal.
2: And we wouldn't do it. In fact, all of our deputies, including myself, wouldn't even know how to check for that, what you're talking about. I wouldn't even know how to find out if somebody was legal or not. Because we don't do it, we never have, and we never will.
1: Um, so please, I mean, you know, when you get back to the kids, I do trust this. Uh, so I, I want to just take a, a moment really fast since we're on the immigration issue. Uh, tonight at, sorry, nope, not tonight. Tomorrow night at the Tacoma City Council on September the 12th, if you're watching this on the live stream, uh, during Citizens Forum, uh, hundreds of Tacoma citizens are going to come out and uh, encourage the City Council to create a legal defense fund for immigrants. And this is a thing that's really important to me. Um, so I teach government class, and we all know that, like, you know, the Miranda rights if you're charged with a crime and can't afford a lawyer, you get a lawyer appointed to you. But that does not apply in civil cases. And so, immigration and evictions and these are all civil cases where people are not offered attorneys. And if you are in a civil a civil case without an attorney, and you're and the other side of the civil case has an attorney, dum dum, you almost always lose. And so, this is a place. This is a situation where Tacoma taxpayers, who are immigrants, pay taxes on a part of our city and are in our schools, and we want to help them. And so, if you're available tomorrow night Tacoma City Council meeting, uh, that'd be Austin awesome came out. So my last question, before we go to halftime and I buy Shannon a beer. Woo! (laughs) Um, So I've been outspoken in my conversation about law enforcement issues, and one of the things that's really frustrated me with, again, national events, is having the police report come out and give one version of affairs, and then video comes out later on with a different version of affairs. And because of that, I've just been compelled that when I see people having encounters with law enforcement, if I have the time, and sometimes if I don't have the time, I just stop, and I pull the car over, and I film. And so many people in this room actually, I think, watched a live stream of me uh, filming somebody in a Home Depot parking lot, and I was approached by several uh, 'er do-gooder, wells who were trying to explain the law to me, and so I'm wondering if, we can kind of do it this way, can you explain the law about filming police, and can you explain if somebody insists on filming the police what best practices you'd like to abide by? You first.
4: So in a public space, you have an absolute right to record police, um, so long as your filming is not obstructing the exercise of law enforcement duties. So if you are like sticking your camera up in the middle of an arrest, that is probably obstruction, and you do not have an absolute right to do that. But standing back at a respectful distance, Um, and filming the encounter is completely legal. You also don't have to be completely silent in that. Simply uh, opining about how you feel the law enforcement situation is going is not itself obstruction. Obstruction in Washington requires some uh, additional level of action, unlike in other places. So you can feel free if you want to do that to voice your opinion about what is going on. Again, so long as you are not inciting other people to like break in. I love to opine.
1: Um, I love to opine. Uh, true.
4: So but. so you can opine. Uh, There's a fine line <laughs>
3: to opine and not find yourself in the back of a patrol car. <laughs>
4: Uh, yeah. Continue, no, but, but there are cases on this in. I mean, there isn't. I can I can tell you the story of an actual case of a, it, which went up to the Washington State Supreme Court of a young man who was watching law enforcement arrest his sister, was shouting about ten feet away very loud stream of pretty constant profanity, um, and was arrested for obstruction of justice, charged and convicted, and the Washington State Supreme Court said, look, that's not obstruction. Um, and if you watch the oral argument, there's a nice sort of you know, minute-long soliloquy by Justice Gonzalez about why did you even charge this case in the first place? Um, so... In a public space, you have an absolute right to record law enforcement, and nothing, and, and they are not allowed to demand that you stop, to seize your cell phone as a response, um, or to punish you in any way because of that. Again, so long as you are not obstructing. Now, in a private space, if for I'm example, I'm going to put a
3: little footnote there. Unless you're at the border,
4: then it gets more complicated. Right,
3: right, right. More complicated,
4: so, but not... Yeah, so the border does get a little bit more complicated. Now, public spaces... Like the of the Home Depot parking lot? Well, yeah, so let's follow, <laughs> <laughs> border between here and there. Um, nice. Private spaces are different, right? So a private property owner has the right to prevent you from filming on their property. So if you are, for example, inside the Home Depot, and the Home Depot people come and say, put away your cell phone, we don't want you filming in here that's a different question. And they can remove you from the store premises if you refuse to comply with the property owner's objectives. But in a public space, you can feel free. Now, airports and the border are a little different. Um, Your right to film at the border, I'm going to just put aside because I don't know that law well enough to tell you exactly what it is. Airports, what I'll tell you is that public spaces of airports, there is, I think, a right to film police and um, law enforcement agents there. Now, private spaces, security screening, and things like that, there is there is not, right? Because those are not sort of open to the public view. Um, but if you are in a public space, you should feel free.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we've been being filmed for years. we got people that go out and intentionally get pulled over so they can film us and try and create havoc in order to, they have their own channels. You can go on and find three or four Different groups of people in Pierce County, Tacoma, that all they do is go film the police. They put all the videos up. Yeah. We're great because what it really does is shows we do a pretty good job most of the time. We're not afraid of the filming. What we don't want you to she do is
1: exactly. What? Say. She sorry, she just yells <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't even hear what she said. So you, you shouldn't be afraid of the filming. You're,
2: and that's what I said. Uh, yep. we're, we're not afraid of filming. Did I say something different? <laughs> no, no, you're good. You're good. Keep going. Anyways, we haven't been for years. We haven't been for years. It's, it's, not a, it's, it's not an issue. What we don't want you to do is get in the way and become the street lawyer and put the f- camera right in the face and start getting in between people. Because we've got to get the situation controlled. Then if you don't like what you saw of that situation and you have the film... Feel free to call. Make a complaint. Bring it in. And deal with it then. But don't deal with something you're not liking right on the spot. Because then you're going to get yourself inserted. Somebody might get hurt. And then you got some issues of your own and everything else that goes on after that because something went bad. And just, Just stay out of the way and film.
1: Not a problem. Can I just clarify one thing really fast? Public space, private space. So I'm in my vehicle. And because of the legislature, I have my phone mounted on my car. On my dashboard. My car, if I'm pulled over... I'm okay if I take my phone and tilt it this way and record the encounter?
4: Yes, okay. Yeah, that's, that is your that is your space and you're in control of it. Okay.
3: And also the, the statutes associated with protection of private communications, you can always consent to your own recording and op, 98% of the time the person you're interacting with these days is also being recorded. So that's why you get that question when you talk to law enforcement. Is, is, well, is, at least where I upset. am, <laughs> sorry. Remember, I've moved now, so where I am now, I can and, tell you know, because my another. gorgeous white privilege got me out of a traffic ticket this week, and I got the asked the question of, uh, you know, I'm do you consent to being recorded? So, yeah.
1: Just one, is Washington State a one-party consent? It is or? a
3: two-party consent state, which okay. means because I'm not going to give Nate the shame pal, that all participants to a private conversation, and there's very specific distinctions about yeah. what private and public conversations are. All parties to a private con- uh, conversation have to consent to being recorded.
1: And then,
2: Ed, you want to say something? I also wanted to say that if you are in a private spot like a Home Depot and you are filming us, we're not going to be the ones that tell you to stop. That's going to be the store, and we're not going to go ask the store to tell you to stop. But if the store has an issue with it, they have an issue with it. But we're not going to be the one to try and get you to stop because we're just trying to take. We're just now with the guys that are coming up; they're just so used to it, they probably wouldn't even know that they couldn't be filmed in a private location until the private location told them. So.
4: And then the other thing I'll say about the the two-party consent privacy law is that police officers, in the course of performing their public duties, have no expectation of privacy. Right. So you don't need to ask the officer for their consent to film them. Right. Um, they, if they are performing their official duties they don't have an expectation that it is somehow going to be off the grid
1: so we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and take questions for about 20 minutes and there's a ton of questions over there okay, we're gonna an, an hour <laughs> <laughs> that, I'm taking a nap um, so now's your opportunity to refill your beer uh, also one more time thanks to Pacific Brewing because you're closed on Mondays you open for us we appreciate that Woo! So five to seven minute break. Go. So we're going to start back up. And there is a lively set of questions coming across on Twitter, as you Twitterers are wont to do. And there are also some questions that are coming over um, from the index cards from my left. And so at this point, I'm going to hand the microphone to Lindsay. And she's going to take this away.
3: Take all the power. Okay, so
5: as um, the panelists were talking and you guys were tweeting, Hope and I were kind of collecting. What I try to do is I try to kind of group the questions so that I'm not asking redundant questions that are worded slightly differently so if you don't hear your exact question I probably sort of made it into one but do feel like you can say well I sort of asked and you moved on so it's not the end all be all but I did try to like put them together so um, kind of the first stream that we had was a lot about mental health. And we had quite a few questions about just the idea that if the Pierce County Sheriff's Office has identified that mental health is a huge issue in the community, so are they getting training? So it's kind of two part. A, what training are our officers getting themselves, and what advocacy are they doing around that? So.
3: Yes, yes, we did. We
5: heard that. Okay, so, two-part
3: question. If we are
5: saying yes, this is an issue, then what training is happening and what advocacy or what funds or what kind of proactivity is happening from the powers that be?
2: Well, we are getting training. Our people are getting training on it, and we're also in the process of including on in our budget to have mental health professionals on call to ride with officers when they know we're going to that type of call. And if we get to the call and it's an issue to have a team of mental health people to come out and do that we're also um, we're also having these closer areas, these smaller facilities that hold 28 to thirty four people because that's what the license can do till you become a, a major hospital to go a whole nother deal, but we want to have them all around the county. There's one in Fife now. We're trying to put one together right near the Pierce County Jail. That way it's just right back and forth, so the services are there, and then hopefully put another one out in Spanaway Parkland. And also having those teams of mental health workers available for people with known mental health problems to be there. Now, we don't want to put them in harm's way. And remember I said earlier, sometimes they're the ones that call us when things have gotten so bad that they know they can't handle them and there's other people that could be in danger. Okay. So to answer the answer your questions: yes, we're receiving training, and yes, we're working with groups to try and, and, and to start this. And we have a whole plan together. It'll be up to the county council and the county executive to see how much of it they want to fund.
5: Okay. I have an interesting kind of follow-up question to that. Mm-hmm. So someone on Twitter said, put a scenario, a family calls because they need help because their family member is suffering from mental illness and methamphetamines, police come, there's a knife in, this person is um, dead at the end. So how do families advocate for help without fearing, and this doesn't just, I mean, lawyers, like everybody, it's not at you, you just were answering it, but so how do families call for help without fearing for the safety of the person if they are mentally
2: ill. I guess that just led to that question. Absolutely. the One of the things that we'll do is if person, if we can get everybody else out of the house, and it's kind of a weird saying, somebody's holding themselves hostage. There's, there's, how do you do that? But what we do is we'll let that person drain down and stay in the house and leave and wait to the next day and have a fresh day to do it, unless there's a risk of them hurting themselves or hurting others. If there's somebody in the house and we can get people out of the house and they're alone, we'll back off that and we'll let it wind down. Now, 15, 20 years ago, probably not. We probably would have tried to go in and get them because we didn't know this person needs help and we got to get them and take them somewhere and get them fixed. Now, days, you'll learn by us doing it, it comes out, the resolution's way better just to let them drain down and let them a lot of times they just fall asleep. We'll send a robot in, they'll be on the couch asleep. We'll so, let them sleep.
5: So the advice is call for help and remove yourself and everyone your else from the situation. Correct. Is that it? Like are, the yeah, well, things, if, are there yeah, things we if, can say to if officers if you're If, you're, when call, calling, if, you're, if you're, like, you're
2: calling for help and you want the officers to come, there's obviously some sort of danger there, right. so don't keep yourself in danger. Um, we'll get there and evaluate the situation. They're always different, and it's going to be great if, we have, if we're able to find out. A lot of times they're going to say to us, he's been in um, seven, treatment seven times, and here's his doctor. Okay, how do we get a hold of him? You know, let, let's go that route. But let, we'll, let's try a different route before it gets to that point.
5: So provide as much information as you can about the situation and... <laughs> Try to get everyone else. Keep a a list
2: with medications, doctor's names, phone numbers, resources that you've been using. Because when we get to that point that that's happened, we'll always hear from the families, this is the fifth time this has happened in a year. Why are we here? Why isn't that person getting help somewhere before this happened? Is what we advocate.
5: Okay. Um, Another large strain of questions, thank you, is a lot about community building, so, um, there's questions kind of like if we don't walk the beat anymore, how do we create that feeling in our neighborhoods? Um, hang on, I'm gonna keep going. Um, and there's ones about um, how do we build community and how do we make that systematic change? So, how do we get the police department involved in communities? How do we create policy for the environment that we want? Um, Uh, One saying that the King County Sheriff's Office has made incredible changes to make sure that its department is able to serve diverse communities. So what is Pierce County doing? So both what is um, policing like and being rooted in that community and de-escalation and what can the community and the rest of us do to kind of build that. So that's for everybody.
3: First and foremost, elect officials who care about the topic, the control of vote the appropriation is not coming from law enforcement as far as their ability to generate the funds to dedicate to specific efforts it's not going to come from law enforcement to change the way they do business it's going to come from the county council from the city council ultimately from the legislature so big picture how do you change how law enforcement interacts with community You have to have the right people in place who want to make a change and then start talking about what the policy looks like collaboratively. I'm going to say it again. People support and sustain things they help create. So it can't be the police telling communities how to engage in community policing. How do you know? You come to places like this. You talk to the candidates. You see what they care about. I'm going to steal from somebody. Show me what your budget is, and you'll show me what your priorities
1: are. Yeah. I, I would just say... Does so, that answer
5: the how do we right. know question? Like?
1: Well, think about Pierce County, right? The answer is not Pam Roach. There's local elections going on that we've been talking about in these happy hours, kind of ongoing. And I think it's really important in these conversations to ask elected officials like what are their, or uh, aspiring electeds, what are their points of view? And like I'm reminded that one of our elected officials was asked a question about Black Lives Matter and police issues and then began like a 10-minute response that began with his son-in-law being a law enforcement officer and never really answering the question. And like, that's, that's the work
4: i also say, like, you can look at platforms on mass incarceration and police accountability, and, and you don't even have to ask, where do you stand on the generalized issue, right? March through the platforms. Um, campaign Zero, which is an outgrowth of um, a lot of Black Lives Matter folks, has a really intensely detailed Thoroughly researched policy platform on police accountability. The ACLU's campaign for smart justice has a thoroughly, and it, it encompasses not just sort of how do you respond to law enforcement force, but everything from um, bail reform at the front end to. Um, you know, mental health systems to access to healthcare and all of these things that feed into these general systems. So actually, you know, march folks through those platforms. How do you, where do you stand on civil asset forfeiture, right? Those kinds of really particular questions are hard for electeds to not answer. Um, And for tell you, oh, civil asset forfeiture. I knew I was going (laughs) to fall on this man. Like, Law school jargons you out. Hey, I. I know what it means. I, I promise that you've never learned to not like. Hold on, let me define that term for you. Civil asset forfeiture um, is a process that does not happen much in Washington, but does happen massive amounts in other parts of the country. Where essentially, if a law enforcement officer suspects that any property may have been involved in any criminal enterprise, they can just take it. And then you, the property owner, have to prove beyond a, you know, to some incredibly high standard why you deserve to get it back. And so in some parts of the country, civil asset forfeiture is how law enforcement departments make their budgets. Um, so, you know, you can ask, how do you, where do you stand on that issue? And that gives you a pretty good sense of how people stand on a whole variety.
1: If you're curious about that issue, uh, Reason Magazine did a really great series actually about it. And this is where you get the nightmare scenario where like the grandmother in Florida has her house taken away by the police officer, by the uh, sheriff's department, because like her grandson was selling weed out of the garage.
5: Okay, I think that kind of helps with the how do we hold institutions? Well, agencies responsible to change culture. So we've talked about communities. So
2: Part part of the community policing model that we've Since we're very rural and we don't have a group of four people that can go around and cover all Pierce County, it's going to be, you know, so what we try to do is teach all of our guys to embrace the concept. And when they're out working, get to know your business owners, get to stop by a different community events and show up. If you go to our Facebook page and you'll see how many times that we are invited to neighborhood watch groups that we're invited to. Well, just this last Saturday, we had a thing called Touch a Truck. We brought all our dive trucks and equipment out, let the kids play all over it, talk to parents, hand out cards, uh, give them different ways they could walk into the precinct if they got a problem in their neighborhood or a problem anywhere without having to call 911 specifically if there's an emergency. Here's other ways to contact us. Something that you might just think is routine is something that we want to know about. So it's a two way dialogue, and we've got all of our guys, most of them embracing that theory and that style of police work.
3: Care about who is in charge of the agency, period. (laughs) Care, no. If it's an elected official, pay attention, vote, find out what they stand for. Don't just assume the race for sheriff, the race for prosecutor, are not important races that you need to be voting in. And if you're thinking about city law enforcement, Think about the fact that it's the city council who hires the city manager and who who the city manager is responsible for the police chief. Know who these people are. Care. If you care passionately about the subject, have the conversation. And they're people too. And sometimes you need to have that personal discussion in order to make sure that you are conveying this is what is important. Let me understand how you feel on this topic.
5: Okay, all right. We have... Kind of some one-offs. Well, a lot of this kind of has to do with department training. Should just throw them at yeah. All right. Um, the first one is, does the Pierce County Sheriff Department ever know how many languages are represented in Pierce County? Like, what kind of data is there about that? And then, um, kind of on a nut, like the same thing, is how then... Does Pierce County and the Sheriff's Office share with monolingual, Spanish-speaking, or other non-English native populations that you don't cooperate with ICE? So kind of like, how are you aware of all the (laughs) linguistic barriers? How do you do that? And how do they know that they're safe interacting with you?
2: There's two ways, two things I want to touch on that. And that we do have multiple languages spoken in Pierce County. A lot We have a lot of military guys that come here, and we, they have wives and family members that don't speak English. And we have a lot of military guys that speak three languages, and we hire them. We go and recruit them. We have a bank of people that can speak multiple languages. We got four or five guys that can speak Russian, a couple dozen that can speak Spanish. We have two that can speak Korean. And if there's something with that community, we will send those people that speak that language. Or if we have a major incident night, we need to interview a witness or a victim, and they don't speak English, we can find somebody. And we're also lucky here in Pierce County that the JBLM has a, a linguistics translation center. And they can also supply people to do uh, translation for us. And if we have crime stoppers posters or posters or written word, we need to get out to the community. We can give it to them, and they'll turn it around for us in 12 hours with the right language on. We'll make copies and we'll go distribute them to that area.
3: As I was gonna say, those are great responsive steps. I think you have to think about it from the perspective of, and, and I have the luxury of being in a school system where we know what languages our families and students speak because we're required to ask and to find out that information. So we know what our families speak and we know what our families speak at the school level and at the classroom level. So um, most school districts have been in the same place that most law enforcement is, which is responsive. We'll translate documents. Okay, well, translating is very different than proactively holding forums in the languages of the community that you're serving. Um, My current superintendent is very passionate that we are a bunch of white folks running a Hispanic district and we have got to change that. So I took the job with the expectation (laughs) that I would return to a level of Spanish fluency within three years. And every significant position that I've posted since I've got here has that same requirement. You have to be bilingual Spanish speaking or willing to learn within three years. Because those conversations aren't authentic when you have somebody, aren't as authentic. And then we have to be careful when we're interacting with folks through translators because we also don't know what the relationships are. There is nothing worse in the school setting than asking a student's sibling to translate or if the person they've had the bad encounter with is the office secretary and turning around and having the office secretary be the person who's translating. Right? How is that authentic communication? How is that like the communication I'm going to get as a native English-speaking white person. It's very different. So we have to be thinking about not just reacting and translating, but engaging and communicating and understanding that it is more than just language. It is understanding culture. It is understanding and being inclusive and going from beyond just non-discrimination, but intentional equity and diversity. And I think that's part of the specific question is when you're
5: saying, you know, we don't, um, we don't partner with ICE, like, is that something that we're telling all of us and the teachers, and how do our families know that?
2: We are actually out getting questions from different, mostly from churches and faith organizations, where they'll have a heavy Korean or heavy, heavy uh, Hispanic population, and we, we go out there and tell them exactly what I told you, and um, we work with them in a lot of different ways. We went to uh, we would go to Korean New Year, and the sheriff and others go. We' would go to the Buddha temple we do tons of events with as much community and different diverse members of community as we can, and we bring the people that want to we would try and get them inclusive and then we try and get them to come on our advisory board we 're at the point now when we have our honorary our, our awards ceremony every year. Uh, Mr. Kim comes from Federal Way in King County because he really likes us, and he brings a lot of people down and introduces us to people and then they ask hey, can you come educate us? So it goes both ways. Can we do a lot more of that? If if we could, if we had the manpower, and if we know about it, absolutely. There's probably a lot more to do out there. But it is something, a service that we have, and it is something that the sheriff has directed us to do. I
5: have a question I'm looking for about... No. No, it's not the one. Um, No. There are other kind of... On the same vein, while I look for the other one. Well, this is actually a good one. So, how is policing different when interacting with tribal members?
2: <laughs> well, we, we, we work really well with the uh, PL tribal nation, the police, but we got to remember that's a, you know, it's kind of a, they have a sovereign nation and they have their own police department, they have their own roles. We don't go on there. In fact, they don't even really like us being on any of their properties armed. We got to disarm when we go to lunches in their places and and disarm. And we respect that. And unless we're going on a call or assisting them in a professional manner while we're working, the same thing as they come off us. But you know, bad guys and people don't, they don't recognize the boundary because, you know, they don't understand that. So the the difference between robbing the store on tribal land or Tacoma or Pierce County means nothing. So we do work together with the tribal police and when we have people in our correctional facility that are Native American, we will, move them to, um, we will move them to the new tribal jail that they just built. And we make that as a possibility, and they gladly accept any Native American we get in the Pierce County Jail because they admit, and we admit too, they have better rehab, resources, and treatment for their people and anybody if they were lucky enough to go there instead of, you know, the bigger 1,400-person jail. They only have 28 beds. And so they have a lot of room and a lot of time and a lot of BIA money to spend on treatments and, and, and put the right programs in place to try and help help the inmate. And we cooperate and do that with the tribes.
5: I did not know that. I feel very informed. <gasps> Nate learning. Okay, um, this is kind of for everyone. So how can we, and I'm assuming that means kind of the public, be assured that kind of use of force and other reports that we're getting are correct? So, of course, there is the review board, but is there something else that are assurances for the public, other ways that we can get information about those things? Like, where else can we look to be um, assured that the information we're getting for use of force
4: and other data is correct? So, I I think the gold standard on public accountability regarding use of force and police interaction is to have a civilian oversight or public accountability system, right? That is always going to be the most transparent, the most publicly available. I mean, under Washington law, you can request any record from a government agency, right, under the Public Records Act. The Public Records Act, though, has a whole number of exemptions, including um, you know, active law enforcement investigations. And um, and all of those privacy exemptions often result in, in either records taking a lot of time for folks to get, um, or coming with heavy redactions, and in some instances, people actually having to file lawsuits to get the records that they want out of agencies, right? Um, so while the Public Records Act is a great tool, and I encourage people to use it, um, it's not necessarily a magic bullet. And so, um, at the end of the day, if we really want civilian oversight, we need to establish civilian oversight systems.
3: I was going to give a very similar answer and say that I probably have a different viewpoint than a lot of people who work for public agencies, which is I love the Public Records Act. I don't mind getting public records requests. I think it helps us do our jobs better. You shouldn't have to rely on a Public Records Act to find out what's going on with respect to your community. But also, really, truly, if you're not yet in a circumstance where there is civilian oversight, which is not where we are, take advantage of the ability to do that. Be patient. Argue back.
2: We have a public records division now, as interesting as 15 years ago when I first started this job. I did the public disclosure records along with the media and everything. We all wore multiple hats, but now we have three people. Their full-time job is to do PDR, public records, disclosure requests. We have uh, two of them are civilians, and one's an officer, and it takes three people full-time to keep up with how many requests we give because we send them out. On that same side, though, as we loosen up the public records, we also got to stop the abuses because, for instance, we had somebody that requested every single female's name that was in the Pierce County Jail and their home address and everything, and he sent them all a letter inviting him to join him in nas- National Masturbation Day. And I said, we all know who this guy is in law enforcement, but he costs us so much time and money, just like people that say, I want every copy of this, and they're hoping for you to fail. So, absolutely, do we want to be upfront with the records, but we also don't want the abuses out there.
3: And I'm going to say, that guy sent me a pornographic birthday card once, but it doesn't mean that I don't believe in the Public Records Act. So, there you go.
2: The same guy did?
1: Uh, one yeah, but, thing. yeah but,
2: the in, but the inmates, the female inmates in the Pierce County Jail shouldn't have to suffer. that. Sure.
1: One thing I would just add for anybody, and what I tell my students is this, if you ever have an adverse encounter with law enforcement, like, record, annotate your story immediately, but then wait two weeks to file the report, because... So there's an interesting series in the Washington Post about police officers who are, who are fired and then rehired after arbitration. Uh, the offense where officers lose their jobs most often lying. is lying. lying. And so if you have an adverse encounter with a law enforcement officer, like immediately record your, your records of the event. Right. But then wait two weeks to turn in the actual report, because at that point, the officer's version of the story has been established as well. And so if the officer used force and didn't disclose it, that's a lie on the record.
2: Our records are all automatic and we type in our reports and everything's within 48 hours can't be changed. So within 48 hours, you have to have your report in or prosecutor's office is knocking on your door and your sergeant's telling you, get your butt over there and write it. So the system has checks and balances to make sure that your case number and your incident, that the report is in and filed within 48 hours.
5: And
0: how long does a citizen have to file their
2: report? As long as you want. We've had people come in a year later. Yeah.
5: So I have a kind of a follow-up which has to do with filming, so filming, part of reporting. So is there training for Pierce County officers about citizens filming? So you're saying they won't tell you to stop, but like, where does that come from? There's not training, it's just...
2: We have different types of trainings. I mean, that's not a five-day training thing to tell people to let you film. But but that's part of a (laughs) two-hour block and updated stuff. Where We just write a memorandum and tell people the law says this. Our legal advice says they are allowed to film. You will not do A, B, and C. And here's the rules, and here's how our department's going to handle it, and you will do this. And so it's a, a statement, and if you don't follow it or you violate it, then not only are you possibly in trouble in opening yourself up civilly, but you got the possibility of sitting in front of the sheriff and explaining to him why you got yourself in this mess, and you may not have a job. When the same people start showing up over and over again, it's a pattern.
5: Yeah. All right, I'm going to go quick. I have three more, but they kind of work. Okay, so the last one that's kind of about training, since we're talking about training, is... Uh, systematically what work is being done with law enforcement related to their uh, racism, internalized superiority, and or bias, and is it mandatorily done? Continuing
0: education.
5: Continuing education? Yeah. So what what kind of training is done that is, you know, continue on that?
2: Well, as far as training goes for law enforcement, you have to have 40 hours in your own field, like, Every year, I have to have 40 hours of media training, whether I teach it or receive it. And then on top of that, you have to go to the range mandatory times. You have to drive a car and keep your proficiency level up. And then on top of that, we'll have new things that come out, like defensive tactics. You're no longer allowed to use a stick or you're no longer allowed to do this then you go through physical training so as things evolve we're always putting out training and the the problem with the police department you just can't train everybody at once because two-thirds of them are working so it takes about nine months to get everybody through a new thing that's training when we have double up days and days off and everything but if something comes out and it's part of the training curriculum you're going
5: Okay, I have two last questions, and they're kind of for everyone. Um, We've heard a lot about, like, we don't do that, or in this state we don't do that a lot, or we don't see this a lot. And it kind of sounds like we are not at the bottom of the pile about this. So what can we do to be sort of a national example, or what are we doing to lead reform
3: (laughs) models for others? Okay, so I would say that we... we talked about how the standard for prosecution of law enforcement for improper use of force yes. in Washington, that He's was the one boss. of the questions, right? Unless you think that this is a story of success, I can tell you the, mm-hmm. one of the most scary moments of my life happened relatively recently when a high school boys soccer match got out of control. And the police officer who responded was from the local jurisdiction, I think he'd been on the job for about... Well, he'd been on his own out of, out of training for about a month. Uh, one of our players' siblings ran at him. Thankfully, another player took him down because I think it was about, I would say, seconds away from, from a shooting happening. And that officer put out a help the officer call. And so I had the unfortunate circumstance of watching the video of one of my high school's soccer teams getting put on a bus and driven out of town by nine different jurisdictions... Right. Nine. It was a, a soccer match that got out of control. Did it warrant that level of law enforcement reaction? So we have to really think about it. And
1: No, it didn't. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and did, did, did the school administration from the other school tell me, by the way, in case you're wondering who didn't get in the melee, it was the four white kids. Right? Thanks, thanks for, for describing that for me. I appreciate... Like, right. Like, th- thanks for sharing. Um, but would the perception had been different if it wasn't a predominantly minority school? I would say that the outcome probably would have been very different. I, I'm grateful that everybody walked away from that situation alive because I certainly, having reviewed the, the, the other team, happened to have a photographer who took still photos that painfully watch them one by one by one? Could it have gone very, very wrong very quickly? Absolutely. Because we can have the best of intentions at a policy level if it's not actually being trained on. It's not just the statement of this is the law, but it's fundamentally getting people to believe this is the right way to do the job. It's not gonna change the outcome. So there's a lot of work to be done. Again, there has to be a belief that this is shared work, policing a community involves the community, not just the police. And that it is a shared partnership and a shared responsibility. I think we're a long way away from that, though I think it is definitely where we need to go.
5: And I think, just for a second, I think that you are actually also getting to the last question, which I'm gonna ask you all, so you might as well just kind of do it at the same time, which is, what do you want us to walk away with from
3: tonight? And I am hearing it is a shared responsibility mm-hmm. and that we need to participate. And loudly and vocally advocate to participate. Take what you felt about today, take the reasons why you're here today, and apply that to the elected officials that you interact with. Take it to the interactions you have with young people. Take it to beyond today, and encourage people to care about this issue as much as you do
4: to be here on a Monday night instead of someplace else. So I think, saying that Washington is not the bottom of the barrel doesn't give us all that much credit, right? Um, not not being the absolute worst on all the things doesn't mean that there isn't a massive amount of work to do. And I think the cleanest example of that recently um, is what happened in Seattle this summer, right? Seattle Police Department is is, and I think justifiably so, right, um, heralded across the country as having done a fair bit of work on policing issues, right, and done a lot of mandatory training, and done a lot of training on implicit bias, and done a lot of training on crisis intervention. And, and, and still, right, this summer Seattle Police Department two officers shot and killed a woman who was holding a kitchen knife in her kitchen with mental health issues in front of her children. And
3: all of those changes was a result of being under federal court supervision. They weren't. It was not a voluntarily voluntary belief
4: voluntary. of Seattle yeah. needs to go change yeah. our policing yeah. practices. Yeah, Seattle didn't just sort of wake up one morning and say, "Well, you know, we're going to fix this ourselves." Yes, um, Jim
3: Robar, You and, probably heard about him a lot. He was all the judge who issued the order restraining the immigration ban. Happens to be the judge supervising the federal enforcement yeah. of law enforcement
4: yeah. in Seattle. And, and that and that was a community led effort, right? The reason the Department of Justice came into Seattle was not because the Department of Justice unilaterally woke up and said, oh, here's where we're coming. They came to Seattle because, you know, 27 community, I'm getting the number wrong, a very large number of community organizations said, look, we have a systematic problem here. And even though Seattle has made a lot of progress, that doesn't mean we're at the stage where we want to be yet, right? And so the fact that you may be in a jurisdiction or have in, officials or have community members who are trying to do the right thing doesn't necessarily mean that we're just like, okay, well, that's good, so let's back off. Um, I do think paying attention not just to policing but to the broad scale of how we as a society respond to social ills is is part of it, right? Um, I do think we have come as a country to this place where we've decided to use a law enforcement and a criminal justice response in a lot of places where it doesn't belong. School policing, I think, being the most obvious example of that, right? Um, A kid mouthing off to their teacher in school does not deserve a law enforcement response. An autistic child who is pacing the hallways and won't go back to their classroom does not deserve a law enforcement response. Folks who are mentally ill and who are having crisis situations don't necessarily need a law enforcement response as the sole or primary response. But as a society, we let things escalate to those points and then call in a law enforcement response. So we need to think much more broadly about what kinds of systems of support and care for folks do we want that go beyond just criminal justice, you broke the law, let's prosecute you and lock them up. And I think that's a place where, no matter what's going on at the national level, right? criminal justice reform is the most local policy there is. Who your prosecutor is, how they choose to approach things, who your sheriff is, that's what drives these systems. Thousands and thousands and thousands of local prosecutors and police officers. Um, and so that's where we should focus our energies, even if we're not the worst. There is not a jurisdiction in this country that is doing everything right.
1: Ed, last words? Last words.
5: What do you want us to remember?
2: I agree with most of everything that you guys have said, and, you know, it goes back to these issues. It would be great if law enforcement never had to respond to the mental health person for the fifth or sixth time. The problem's before we get there. And usually when we get there, everything's gone to hell, for lack of a better term. And yes, can we do it better? Yes, are we learning? Are we going to take mental health people with us and try other things before we have to get into a confrontation? Do we let things de-escalate? It's a lot different than it was 15 years ago because I've seen the whole thing change. We can always find the bad teacher, make an example of them across the country. We can always find the bad cop, and we'll be able to do that with both for the rest of our careers. But in the totality of the whole, of being in Tacoma, Pierce County. I've heard a lot about shootings in Seattle and across the country, but I think we do a pretty darn good job here in Pierce County in Tacoma because we have to for a lot of reasons. Does anybody ever met Sheriff Pastor? Paul Pastor, do you know who he is? Yeah, yeah he's a great guy and he's a good leader. And you know, we have Mark on the prosecutor side that is very, uh, Mark, when we were talking, how many burglaries you actually got to do now before you go to jail? Three, Three? five, five, so you can get convicted prison. of br- prison. Yeah, prison. So, so. What, you, wait, 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 what comes before prison? Yeah. Well, jail. Well, yeah. so, so there is, like, incarceration. Burglars. These are people that kick your door in and come in your house sometimes when you're there or not there and take your stuff. What's the difference it's, between jail and it's, prison? It's, oh, there's a big difference. No, no, yeah. so we So that we save difference.
3: the bell.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: the jail. Jails were designed for people that do misdemeanors and small stuff to stay in there who don't learn their lesson after eight times and they need to go through the court system because the court system's there. Unfortunately, like I said, we're over 80% felon population that you know, needs to go off. I mean, we're talking violent offenders, we're talking hardcore felons, and people that are habitual criminals that have been arrested over and over and over. Like we said, burglary, now even, even car theft is a juvenile's four times conviction, right? Before you see a day in jail. So, so I'll give
3: the I'm gonna give the simple answer. The intention of jail is people who are awaiting trial, who've not posted bail, or they're incarcerated having not had bail available to them, or a conviction of a generally speaking, a misdemeanor, so less than a year. Prison is intended for people who've been convicted and are intending to have a longer sentence. For the
0: integrity of the Twitter feed, it would be amazing if
3: someone could source that in Tacoma and Pierce
0: County, eighty percent so people we, we, in our jails are
3: I mean, we we we
2: already we'll sent that we, we data already data. sent the that numbers was out. That was yeah, statewide. we so sent numbers out. We can, out. We I can even sure. Yeah. I mean, we're just Absol- the absolutely, absolutely. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and now I don't put out numbers. I can't back up, and I don't or talk like, about things. Right, I, right, I mean, can't. And idea. absolutely for the integrity of the Twitter feed too. Mm-hmm. But you know what? <laughs> I also like to know where that soccer game was played. I thought you guys do you guys go to Columbia or something?
3: Sunny side Washington oh. my friends <laughs> sunny side Washington I, I, I
2: was confused I was like I was like does something like that happen around here I'd hope we would have heard about it but sunny, never okay it up, but I really All like, right
4: what do you want the
2: citizens to remember Remember no, that uh, remember so all cards? some of the programs that we do have that okay. you didn't realize that we had yes. and please make sure kids if they're in trouble or in peril still go to the police for help yes,
3: right. I'm going to throw in don't let Nate the prosecutor and Ed Troyer be the only people in this room who've ever interacted with Paul Pastor. Thank you. Say that again. Don't let the four of us be the only people who've ever interacted with the Pierce County Sheriff. He's an elected official. He is. We're,
2: we have an open him, door. Engage with
3: Interact with him. Know who he is. Know what he supports. You have an opportunity to have the same you know, conversations that you can have that we're having here today with him. You know, we have the elected county prosecutor in the room. Have those conversations. It should not be the lawyer, the national, the the teacher of the year and the county prosecutor and an employee of the sheriff's office who's interacted with the prosecutor. Who is the Paul Pastor of the
1: city of we don't, have an, we don't have an elected right. sheriff. We have a hired, appointed chief. chief, chief. Ramsdale?
3: That person didn't want to come tonight
1: or was not invited? Or- I called. I don't want to talk about this on camera. oh but- <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Marguerite. Uh, speaking of, speaking of, I just want to say thank you to all three for coming out tonight. let give our panel a round of applause. And I want that last question, too. The things that I want you to do, I want you to follow Moves to Come on Facebook. I want you to subscribe to all the Channel 253 podcasts because I'm gonna have Vanessa on the Nerd Farmer podcast very soon. Long story short, she was actually supposed to be the first guest, but had to cancel, and we've been chasing each other for about 15 episodes now, so we'll (laughs) get you on. Uh, And then the last thing I want you to do is come out for October happy hour. Uh, October, we're gonna be back at uh, Black Kettle, October the second? Yes. Marguerite, is
5: that official, October second? Yes. Yes,
1: At Black Kettle. And hold on, is that the affordable housing one?
5: No, immigration. Ah yes. Sorry, and, yeah, and
1: that and that happy hour will be another uh, talking about immigration issues and what's happening locally and how we can help people who are uh, getting screwed basically.
3: So you could go to the city council.
1: Okay, yeah, and so if you follow the channel two five three feed, you'll get all of the podcasts. But we're talking about the Interchangeable white lady podcast, which is dope. Uh, Who's the white lady? Who's the white? Lady. We're moving on. Uh, the Flounders B Team Podcast, which is a local soccer podcast, and then also the Move to Tacoma podcast and Tacoma. And I'm done plugging podcasts now. Uh, please close your tabs. Tip well. Thank you for coming out. Good night. Thank
0: you. <laughs> Wanna learn more about life in Tacoma? Visit MoveToTacoma.com. Move to Tacoma.com.
1: This is channel 253.